0: Section six of Six Stories by George MacDonald. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alison Valdes. Section six The Broken Swords. Part one. The eyes of three, two sisters and a brother, gazed for the last time on a great pale golden star that followed the sun down the steep west. It went down to arise again, and the brother about to depart might return, but more than the usual doubt hung upon his future. For between the white dresses of the sisters shone his scarlet coat and golden sword-knot, which he had put on for the first time, more to gratify their pride than his own vanity. The brightening moon, as if prophetic of a future memory, had already begun to dim the scarlet and the gold, and to give them a pale ghostly hue. In her thoughtful light the whole group seemed more like a meeting in the land of shadows than a parting in the substantial earth. But which should be called the land of realities, the region where appearance and space and time drive between and stop the flowing currents of the soul's speech? or that region where heart meets heart, and appearance has become the slave to utterance, and space and time are forgotten. Through the quiet air came the far-off rush of water, and the near cry of the land-rail. Now and then a chilly wind blew unheeded through the startled and jostling leaves that shaded the ivy-seat. Else there was calm everywhere, rendered yet deeper and more intense by the dusky sorrow that filled their hearts for far away hundreds of miles beyond the hearing of their ears roared the great war-guns next week their brother must sail with his regiment to join the army and tomorrow he must leave his home the sisters looked on him tenderly with vague fears about his fate yet little they divined it that the face they loved might lie pale and bloody in a heap of slain was the worst image of it that arose before them But this, had they seen the future, they would, in ignorance of the further future, have infinitely preferred to that which awaited him. And even while they looked on him, a dim feeling of the unsuitableness of his lot filled their minds. For, indeed, to all judgments it must have seemed unsuitable that the home boy, the loved of his mother, the pet of his sister, who was happy, womanlike, as Coleridge says, if he possessed the signs of love, having never yet sought for its proofs, that he should be sent amongst soldiers to command and be commanded to kill or perhaps to be himself crushed out of the fair earth in the uproar that brings back for the moment the reign of night and chaos no wonder that to his sisters it seemed strange and sad yet such was their own position in the battle of life in which their father had died with doubtful conquest that when their old military uncle sent the boy in an science commission, they did not dream of refusing the only path open, as they thought, to an honourable profession, even though it might lead to the trench grave. They heard it as the voice of destiny, wept, and yielded. If they had possessed a deeper insight into his character, they would have discovered yet further reason to doubt the fitness of the profession chosen for him, and if they had ever seen him at school, it is possible the doubt of fitness might have strengthened into a certainty of incongruity. His comparative inactivity amongst his schoolfellows, though occasioned by no dullness of intellect, might have suggested the necessity of a quiet life, if inclination and liking had been the arbiters in the choice. Nor was this inactivity the result of defective animal spirits either, for sometimes his mirth and boyish frolic were unbounded, but it seemed to proceed from an over-activity of the inward life absorbing and in some measure checking the outward manifestation he had so much to do in his own hidden kingdom that he had not time to take his place in the polity and strife of the commonwealth around him hence while other boys were acting he was thinking in this point of difference he felt keenly the superiority of many of his companions for another boy would have the obstacle overcome or the adversary subdued while he was meditating on the propriety or on the means of effecting the desired end he envied their promptitude while they never saw reason to envy his wisdom for his conscience tender and not strong frequently transformed slowness of determination into irresolution while a delicacy of the sympathetic nerves tended to distract him from any predetermined course, by the diversity of their vibrations, responsive to influences from all quarters, and destructive to unity of purpose. Of such a one, the a priori judgment would be that he ought to be left to meditate and grow for some time, before being called upon to produce the fruits of action— but add to these mental conditions a vivid imagination and a high sense of honour nourished in childhood by the reading of the old knightly romances and then put the youth in a position in which action is imperative and you have elements of strife sufficient to reduce that fair kingdom of his to utter anarchy and madness Yet so little do we know ourselves, and so different are the symbols with which the imagination works its algebra from the realities which those symbols represent, that as yet the youth felt no uneasiness, but contemplated his new calling with a glad enthusiasm and some vanity. For all his prospect lay in the glow of the scarlet and the gold. Nor did this excitement receive any check till the day before his departure, on which day I have introduced him to my readers.' when accidentally taking up a newspaper of a week old, his eye fell on these words, "'Already crying women are to be met in the streets.' With this cloud afar on his horizon, which, no bigger than a man's hand, yet cast a perceptible shadow over his mind, he departed next morning. The coach carried him beyond the consecrated circle of home laws and impulses, out into the great tumult, above which rises ever and anon the cry of Cain, am i my brother's keeper every tragedy of higher order constructed in christian times will correspond more or less to the grand drama of the bible wherein the first act opens with a brilliant sunset vision of paradise in which childish sense and need are served with all the profusion of the indulgent nurse but the glory fades off into gray and black and night settles down upon the heart which, rightly uncontent with the childish, and not having yet learned the childlike, seeks knowledge and manhood as a thing denied by the Maker, and yet to be gained by the creature, so sets forth alone to climb the heavens, and instead of climbing falls into the abyss. Then follows the long dismal night of feverish efforts and delirious visions, or it may be helpless despair, till at length, A deeper stratum of the soul is heaved to the surface, and amid the first dawn of morning the youth says within him, "I have sinned against my Maker. I will arise and go to my father." More or less, I say, will Christian tragedy correspond to this, a fall and a rising again, not a rising only, but a victory, not a victory merely, but a triumph. Such in its way and degree is my story. I have shown in one passing scene the home paradise. Now I have to show a scene of far-differing nature. The young ensign was lying in his tent, weary but wakeful. All day long the cannon had been bellowing against the walls of the city, which now lay with wide gaping breach, ready for the morrow's storm, but covered yet with the friendly darkness. His regiment was ordered to be ready, with the earliest dawn, to march up to the breach— That day, for the first time, there had been blood on his sword. There the sword lay, a spot on the chaste, hilt-sword. He had cut down one of the enemy in a skirmish with a sally party of the besieged, and the look of the man as he fell haunted him. He felt, for the time, that he dared not pray to the father, for the blood of a brother had rushed forth at the stroke of his arm, and there was one fewer of living souls on the earth because he lived thereon and to-morrow he must lead a troop of men up to that poor disabled town, and turn them loose upon it, not knowing what might follow in the triumph of enraged and victorious foes, who for weeks had been subjected by the constancy of the place to the greatest privations. It was true the general had issued his commands against all disorder and pillage, but if the soldiers once yielded to temptation, what might not be done before the officers could reclaim them? All the wretched tales he had read of the sack of cities rushed back on his memory. He shuddered as he lay. Then his conscience began to speak, and to ask what right he had to be there. Was the war a just one? He could not tell. But this was a bad time for settling nice questions. And there he was, right or wrong, fighting and shedding blood on God's earth beneath God's heaven. Over and over he turned the question in his mind. Again and again the spouting blood of his foe, and the death look in his eye, rose before him. And the youth who at school could never fight with a companion, because he was not sure that he was in the right, was alone in the midst of undoubting men of war, amongst whom he was driven helplessly along, upon the waves of a terrible necessity. What wonder that in the midst of these perplexities his courage should fail him! What wonder that the consciousness of fainting should increase the faintness!— or that the dread of fear and its consequences should hasten and invigorate its attacks. To crown all, when he dropped into a troubled slumber at length, he found himself hurried, as on a storm of fire through the streets of the captured town, from all the windows of which looked forth familiar faces, old and young, but distorted from the memory of his boyhood by fear and wild despair. On one spot lay the body of his father, with his face to the earth, and he woke at the cry of horror and rage that burst from his own lips as he saw the rough bloody hand of a soldier twisted in the loose hair of his elder sister and the younger fainting in the arms of a scoundrel belonging to his own regiment he slept no more as the grey morning broke the troops appointed for the attack assembled without sound of trumpet or drum and were silently formed in fitting order The young ensign was in his place, weary and wretched after his miserable night. Before him he saw a great broad-shouldered lieutenant, whose brawny hand seemed almost too large for his sword-hilt, and in any one of whose limbs played more animal life than in the whole body of the pale youth. The firm-set lips of this officer and the fire of his eye showed a concentrated resolution, which, by the contrast increased the misery of the ensign and seemed as if the stronger absorbed the weaker to draw out from him the last fibres of self-possession the sight of unattainable determination while it increased the feeling of the arduousness of that which required such determination threw him into the great gulf which lay between him and it in this disorder of his nervous and mental condition with a doubting conscience and a shrinking heart Is it any wonder that the terrors which lay before him at the gap in those bristling walls should draw near, and, making sudden inroad upon his soul, overwhelm the government of a will worn out by the tortures of an unassured spirit? What share fear contributed to unman him it was impossible for him, in the dark, confused conflict of differing emotions, to determine— But doubtless a natural shrinking from danger, there being no excitement to deaden its influence, and no hope of victory to encourage to the struggle, seeing victory was dreadful to him as defeat, had its part in the sad result. Many men who have courage are dependent on ignorance, and a low state of the moral feeling for that courage, and a further progress towards the development of the higher nature would, for a time at least, entirely overthrow it nor could such loss of courage be rightly designated by the name of cowardice. But, alas, the colonel happened to fix his eyes upon him as he passed along the file, and this completed his confusion. He betrayed such evident symptoms of perturbation that the officer ordered him under arrest, and the result was that, chiefly for the sake of example to the army, he was upon trial by court-martial expelled from the service, and had his sword broken over his head. "'Alas for the delicate-minded youth! "'Alas for the home-darling! "'Long after he found at the bottom of his chest "'the pieces of the broken sword, "'and remembered that at the time "'he had lifted them from the ground and carried them away. "'But he could not recall under what impulse he had done so.' Perhaps the agony he suffered, passing the bounds of mortal endurance, had opened for him a vista into the eternal, and had shown him, if not the injustice of the sentence passed upon him, yet his freedom from blame, or endowing him with dim prophetic vision, had given him the assurance that some day the stain would be wiped from his soul, and leave him standing clear before the tribunal of his own honour some feeling like this i say may have caused him with a passing gleam of indignant protest to lift the fragments from the earth and carry them away even as the friends of a so-called traitor may bear away his mutilated body from the wheel but if such was the case the vision was soon overwhelmed and forgotten in the succeeding anguish He could not see that, in mercy to his doubting spirit, the question which had agitated his mind almost to madness, and which no results of the impending conflict could have settled for him, was thus quietly set aside for the time. Nor that, painful as was the dark, dreadful existence that he was now to pass in self-torment and moaning, it would go by, and leave his spirit clearer far than if, in his apprehension, it had been stained with further blood-guiltiness, instead of the loss of honor years after, when he accidentally learned that on the very morning the whole of his company, with parts of several more, had, or ever they began to mount the breach, been blown to pieces by the explosion of a mine, he cried aloud in bitterness, "'Would God that my fear had not been discovered before I reached that spot!' But surely it is better to pass into the next region of life having reaped some assurance, some firmness of character, determination of effort, and consciousness of the worth of life in the present world." so approaching the future steadily and faithfully, and if in much darkness and ignorance yet, not in the oscillations of moral uncertainty. Close upon the catastrophe followed a torpor, which lasted he did not know how long, and which wrapped in a thick fog all the succeeding events. For some time he can hardly be said to have had any conscious history— he awoke to life and torture, when half-way across the sea towards his native country, where was no home any longer for him. To this point and no farther could his thoughts return in after years. But the misery which he then endured is hardly to be understood, save by those of like delicate temperament with himself. All day long he sat silent in his cabin, nor could any effort of the captain or others on board induce him to go on deck till night came on when, under the starlight, he ventured into the open air. The sky soothed him, then, he knew not how. For the face of nature is the face of God, and must bear expressions that can influence, though unconsciously to them, the most ignorant and hopeless of his children. Often did he watch the clouds in hope of a storm, his spirit rising and falling as the sky darkened or cleared he longed in the necessary selfishness of such suffering for a tumult of waters to swallow the vessel, and only the recollection of how many lives were involved in its safety, besides his own, prevented him from praying to God for lightning and tempest, borne on which he might dash into the haven of the other world. One night, following a sultry calm day, he thought that Mercy had heard his unuttered prayer. The air and sea were in intense darkness, till a light as intense for one moment annihilated it, and the succeeding darkness seemed shattered with the sharp reports of the thunder that cracked without reverberation. He who had shrunk from battle with his fellow men rushed to the mainmast, threw himself on his knees, and stretched forth his arms in speechless energy of supplication. But the storm passed away overhead, and left him kneeling still by the uninjured mast at length the vessel reached her port he hurried on shore to bury himself in the most secret place he could find out of sight was his first his only thought return to his mother he would not he could not and indeed his friends never learned his fate until it had carried him far beyond their reach For several weeks he lurked about, like a malefactor, in low lodging-houses in narrow streets of the seaport to which the vessel had borne him, heeding no one, and but little shocked at the strange society and conversation with which, though only in bodily presence, he had to mingle. These formed the subjects of reflection in after-times, and he came to the conclusion that, though much evil and much misery exist, sufficient to move prayers and tears in those who love their kind— Yet there is less of both than those looking down from a more elevated social position upon the weltering heap of humanity are ready to imagine, especially if they regard it likewise from the pedestal of self-congratulation on which a meagre type of religion has elevated them. But at length his little stock of money was nearly expended, and there was nothing that he could do or learn to do in this seaport he felt impelled to seek manual labour partly because he thought it more likely he could obtain that sort of employment without a request for reference as to his character which would lead to inquiry about his previous history and partly perhaps from an instinctive feeling that hard bodily labour would tend to lessen his inward suffering he left the town therefore at nightfall of a july day carrying a little bundle of linen and the remains of his money Somewhat augmented by the sale of various articles of clothing and convenience, which his change of life rendered superfluous and unsuitable. He directed his course northwards, travelling principally by night, so painfully did he shrink from the gaze even of footfarers like himself, and sleeping during the day in some hidden nook of wood or thicket, or under the shadow of a great tree in a solitary field. So fine was the season that for three successive weeks. He was able to travel thus without inconvenience, lying down when the sun grew hot in the forenoon, and generally waking when the first faint stars were hesitating in the great darkening heavens that covered and shielded him. For above every cloud, above every storm, rise up, calm, clear, divine, the deep infinite skies. They embrace the tempest, even as the sunshine. By their permission it exists within their boundless peace." therefore it cannot hurt and must pass away while there they stand as ever domed up eternally lasting strong and pure several times he attempted to get agricultural employment But the whiteness of his hands and the tone of his voice not merely suggested unfitness for labour, but generated suspicion as to the character of one who had evidently dropped from a rank so much higher, and was seeking admittance within the natural masonic boundaries and secrets and privileges of another. Disheartened somewhat, but hopeful, he journeyed on. I say hopeful, for the blessed power of life in the universe, in fresh air and sunshine absorbed by active exercise, in winds— yea, in rain, though it fell but seldom, had begun to work its natural healing, soothing effect upon his perturbed spirit. And there was room for hope in his new endeavour. As his bodily strength increased, and his health considerably impaired by inward suffering improved, the trouble of his soul became more endurable, and in some measure to endure is to conquer and destroy. In proportion as the mind grows in the strength of patience, the disturber of its peace sickens and fades away. At length one day a widow lady in a village through which his road led him gave him a day's work in her garden. He laboured hard and well, notwithstanding his soon blistered hands, received his wages thankfully, and found a resting-place for the night on the low part of a haystack from which the upper portion had been cut away. Here he ate his supper of bread and cheese, pleased to have found such comfortable quarters, and soon fell fast asleep. When he awoke, the whole heavens and earth seemed to give a full denial to sin and sorrow. The sun was just mounting over the horizon, looking up the clear, cloud-mottled sky. From millions of water-drops, Hanging on the bending stalks of grass, sparkled his rays in varied refraction, transformed here to a gorgeous burning ruby, there to an emerald, green as the grass, and yonder to a flashing sunny topaz. The chanting priest lark had gone up from the low earth as soon as the heavenly light had begun to enwrap and illumine the folds of its tabernacle, and had entered the high heavens with his offering. Whence, unseen, he now dropped on the earth the sprinkled sounds of his overflowing blessedness. The poor youth rose but to kneel and cry from a bursting heart, "'Hast thou not, O Father, some care for me? Canst thou not restore my lost honour? Can anything befall thy children for which thou hast no help? Surely if the face of thy world lie not, joy and not grief is at the heart of the universe. Is there none for me?' the highest poetic feeling of which we are now conscious springs not from the beholding of perfected beauty but from the mute sympathy which the creation with all its children manifests within us in the groaning and travailing which look for the sonship because of our need and aspiration the snowdrop gives birth in our hearts to a loftier spiritual and poetic feeling than the rose most complete in form colour and odour the roses of paradise, the snowdrop is of the striving, hoping, longing earth. Perhaps our highest poetry is the expression of our aspirations and the sympathetic forms of visible nature, nor is this merely a longing for a restored paradise, for even in the ordinary history of men no man or woman that has fallen can be restored to the position formerly held. Such must rise to a yet higher place— whence they can behold their former standing far beneath their feet. They must be restored by the attainment of something better than they ever possessed before, or not at all. If the law be a weariness, we must escape it by taking refuge with the Spirit, for not otherwise can we fulfil the law than by being above the law. To escape the overhanging rocks of Sinai we must climb to its secret top. Is thy straight horizon dreary? Is thy foolish fancy chill? Change the feet that have grown weary, For the wings that never will. Thus, like one of the wandering knights Searching the wide earth for the sangreal, Did he wander on, searching for his lost honour, Or rather, for that he counted gone for ever, Seeking unconsciously for the peace of mind Which had departed from him, And taken with it not the joy merely, But almost the possibility— of existence. At last, when his little store was all but exhausted, he was employed by a market gardener, in the neighbourhood of a large country town, to work in his garden, and sometimes take his vegetables to market. With him he continued for a few weeks, and wished for no change, until, one day driving his cart through the town, he saw approaching him an elderly gentleman, whom he knew at once, by his gait and carriage, to be a military man. Now he had never seen his uncle, the retired officer, but it struck him that this might be he, and under the tyranny of his passion for concealment, he fancied that, if it were he, he might recognize him by some family likeness, not considering the improbability of his looking at him. This fancy, with the painful effect which the sight of an officer, even in plain clothes, had upon him, recalling the torture of that frightful day, so overcame him that he found himself at the other end of an alley before he recollected that he had the horse and cart in charge. This increased his difficulty, for now he dared not return, lest his inquiries after the vehicle, if the horse had strayed from the direct line, should attract attention, and cause interrogations which he would be unable to answer. THE FATAL WANT OF SELF-POSSESSION SEEMED AGAIN TO RUIN HIM. HE FORSOOK THE TOWN BY THE NEAREST WAY, STRUCK ACROSS THE COUNTRY TO ANOTHER LINE OF ROAD, AND, BEFORE HE WAS MISSED, WAS MILES AWAY, STILL IN A NORTHERLY DIRECTION. BUT ALTHOUGH HE THUS SHUNNED THE FACE OF MAN, ESPECIALLY OF ANY ONE WHO REMINDED HIM OF THE PAST, THE LOSS OF HIS REPUTATION IN THEIR EYES WAS NOT THE CAUSE OF HIS INWARD GRIEF. That would have been comparatively powerless to disturb him had he not lost his own respect. He quailed before his own thoughts. He was dishonoured in his own eyes. His perplexity had not yet sufficiently cleared away to allow him to see the extenuating circumstances of the case, nor to say the fact that the peculiar mental condition in which he was at the time removed the case quite out of the class of ordinary instances of cowardice. He condemned himself more severely than any of his judges would have dared, remembering that portion of his mental sensations which had savoured of fear, and forgetting the causes which had produced it. He judged himself a man stained with the foulest blot that could cleave to a soldier's name, a blot which nothing but death, not even death, could efface. But inwardly condemned and outwardly degraded, his dread of recognition was intense, and feeling that he was in more danger of being discovered where the population was sparser, he resolved to hide himself once more in the midst of poverty, and with this view found his way to one of the largest of the manufacturing towns.